I'd like to imagine, you to imagine, please, that uh, you're, playing, you're playing snap with a three-year-old child. And uh, it could be that it's a, a son or a daughter or a grandchild or a niece or nephew. And you're, you're playing this game, as we all know it, snap. And uh, you're determined to win absolutely every game. I can see some people going, yeah, I know that, I know that feeling. And, um, and so you begin to cheat. And uh, if you don't know how to cheat a snap, I'm about to tell you how you cheat a snap, okay? So obviously, you, you turn the cards over that way rather than turn the cards over that way. So if you turn the cards over that way, then it's possible the person you're playing may just see them first. You do it really quickly. Or you can do it slowly that way, and then you have a split second. I'm sorry to tell you this if you've never thought of this. I'm, 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 this is probably not a good idea. Uh, but you know, so uh, I, I, I'll, don't try this at home, OK? Uh, so you turn the card over, and you have a split second, and so it, that gives you the advantage. So you're playing this game, and of course, you start winning virtually all the games. And uh, at, first, at first, you think, yeah, this feels good. I'm, I'm, win I'm winning all these games. I've got this big deck of cards. And the person I'm playing has only got three cards left. And at first, you feel really good. But gradually, the victories become more and more hollow. And the child, obviously, is not enjoying the game. And this realization begins to dawn on you that by winning the way you're choosing to win, you're actually losing every time. Because you realize this is actually not what the game's all about. The prize here is not winning at snap. The prize here is the relationship. And so you stop cheating. And, and the child, because they're good at snap and they have very fast reflexes, they, they start to win the games. And the atmosphere is utterly transformed because the child just starts to laugh with delight. And you start to laugh along with them. And the whole place is just transformed. And you realize this is what the game is all about. We had two readings this morning from Genesis. There's a a section of Genesis between chapter 25 and 36, where we read about the life of Jacob. The name Jacob means deceiver, and Jacob lived up to his name. Jacob was a cheat. Jacob was a manipulator. If you think your family is complicated, then listen to this. Quick summary. Jacob's life. I imagine most of us here today think, yeah, if you knew my family, you would know just how complicated we are. But uh, the Bible doesn't shy away from telling us about complicated family situations. So Abraham was the grandson, grandfather of Jacob. There was Abraham and Sarah. Then there was Isaac and Rebekah and then they were Jacob's parents, and then they had two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau was older by a very, very, very short period of time. They were twin boys, and as they grew up, 
Esau became a very athletic person. He was skilled at hunting. He liked to go out and, uh, and get wild game and, and, and feed the family. And he was his father's favorite. If you ever want to create problems in your family, then have favorites, okay? So, and the Bible tells us what happens when you have favorites. It's disastrous. So uh, Jacob, Jacob was his mother's favorite. He preferred not to go out to hunt. He preferred to stay at home among the tents, the Bible tells us. And he was his mother, Rebecca's favorite. And so Rebecca's mother says to him, look, I've got a plan for how you're going to receive your father's blessing and the inheritance. I want you to pretend to be Esau, uh, stick hairy fur, furs on your arms, go in, put on a deep voice, pretend to be your brother and seek to get the blessing. Bring him a good lot of game stew, see if you can get the blessing. Goes in, Isaac can't see very well, works a treat and uh, Jacob gets the blessing. The deceiver deceives and he receives his father's blessing. Esau is utterly livid. He is furious. And he, he is determined to kill his brother. And he says, in the hearing of those around him, the day my father Isaac dies will be the day I kill my brother. Word gets out about this, and Rebecca says to her, her favorite son Isaac, it's time to get out of here. And he, she says, go to your father, say you want to get a wife back at the, at the old family farm, as it were, back where the, where the family come from, not a Canaanite woman, but a someone from the family, and get out of here as quickly as possible. Isaac go, uh, Jacob goes to his dad, Isaac, uh, gets blessing to go and find a wife, and he goes to see Rebecca's brother Laban, his uncle, in order to find a wife. And to keep himself alive. And so off he goes, and the first reading that we had today that Mark read for us from Genesis chapter 28 is a moment, there, the two readings are, are moments of transformation for Jacob. And they both happen in places where Jacob is alone with God. The transformation happens in a place of solitude. The first one, he, he stumbles he stumbles upon the presence of God. He's not looking for the presence of God, but he's running for his life. He's a young man. He is terrified. All his life, he has lived without hardly going outside the camp. All, all he has ever known is his mother and his father and his brother and, and, and some tents. And all of a sudden, he finds himself out in the middle of nowhere, and his brother wants to kill him. He wonders if his brother's coming after him. He's going to see family. He's hoping to find a wife. Everything they knew that it was secure about has suddenly been thrown up in the air. And he arrives, I imagine, at this place in the middle of nowhere where he's utterly exhausted. And he lies down, puts a stone under his head, and he, I imagine, just falls fast asleep in the midst of his fear and the midst of his exhaustion. And in the middle of the night, he has an encounter with God. He has a vivid dream, and he has a picture of a stairway between earth and heaven and angels of God ascending and descending, and he sees an image of God standing right beside him, and God speaks to him in an unconditional covenant, and God says to him exactly what he needs to hear in the midst of his fear. He doesn't know where he's going, really. He doesn't know if he's going to stay alive. He doesn't know what the future holds. He's cut off from his family, and the Lord says to him, 
I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It is like an echo of the covenant with Abraham, between God and Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth or the sand on the seashore. Now, when you're a young man who thinks he may not live past a 24-hour period, that's exactly what you need to hear. And you think, I've made a complete mess. I don't know where my life's headed. And God says, in effect, I have a purpose for your life. You're going to flourish. Your descendants are going to flourish. And in fact, the whole earth is going to flourish because of you and your descendants. And I'm going to be with you always. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stick with you and I'm going to bless your life. And Jacob gets up and he is just absolutely struck by what He has seen so vividly in this dream. It's been a deep encounter with God. He takes the stone that was his pillow. He puts it up. He pours oil on it to consecrate it. And he says, we're going to call this place Bethel. Beth, that means house or home. El, that means God. This is the house of God. The next moment of solitude happens 20 years later. Jacob goes to the house home of his uncle Laban, and uh, he, again, to cut a long story short, um, Jacob the cheat finally meets his match because he meets someone who is able to manipulate and to uh, deceive even better than him. This man, Laban, his uncle, has had even more years' experience in doing it, and so he tricks Jacob to marrying both of his daughters, Leah, who Jacob doesn't want to marry, and after another seven years after that, Rachel, who he does want to marry. But as the story goes on, Jacob continues to deceive and cheat and manipulate, and so at that second reading from Genesis chapter 23, Jacob is on the run once again. And this time he's running from his uncle Laban because he's double-crossed him. And this time he sends across, he's on a journey back home. It's more than 20 years later. He hasn't seen his family for over 20 years. And as he heads towards home, he sends scouts ahead of him to tell his brother Esau that he's coming. And the scouts come back and say, Esau is coming to meet you. And he's coming to meet you with 400 men. Now, what do you think if you're heading back towards home, your brother's coming to meet you, you're coming to meet him, you have two wives, children, some servants, and hundreds of sheep and goats. You don't have a a force, a task force, as it were. You just have a big, big family unit. 
and the brother that you double-crossed over 20 years ago is coming. Is he coming by himself? No, he's coming with 400 men. And Jacob is utterly terrified. And again, he thinks, my, my life is over. And again, he meets with God in a place of solitude. What happens this time is Jacob, the schemer, he decides to not only send gifts ahead of himself to his brother Esau, he sends his wife and his children and his servants ahead of him. And you can still see Jacob, the deceiver, at work. He splits his camp in two. He thinks, well, if half of us get slaughtered, at least half of us live. He sends the family ahead, and he thinks to himself, maybe this will placate if he sees his nieces and nephews first, if he sees my wives first, and he sees my servants and animals and thinks, well, Jacob has become a bit of a, a powerful person, and I better... He's trying to do two things. He's trying to melt his brother's heart, and he's trying to say, actually, I've become a person of influence. He's doing his very best to keep himself alive. Uh, not particularly chivalrous because of his brothers coming to murder everybody, he sends his wife and his children out the front. He's trying to save his own skin. And so he sends them all across the river Jabbok and he stays by himself. He purposely, deliberately chooses to be alone. Does he want to be alone to scheme? Or does he want to be alone to pray? We're not sure. But the reality is he's alone. And where is the last time that we read of his solitude? Jacob has a good night's sleep and a vision. This time, Jacob doesn't sleep a wink. Instead, he tosses and turns all night and he wrestles. He wrestles, the Bible says, with a man. He wrestles, the Bible says, with an angel. He wrestles, the Bible says, with God himself. And so at the end of this wrestle, Jacob is going to have a new name, and his name is going to be Israel. His name is no longer going to be deceiver and cheat. His name is going to be wrestles with God. Now, if there's one thing that Jacob knew to do, it was to wrestle. What do wrestlers do? They manipulate the arms and legs of their opponents to cause the maximum discomfort and pain. That's what wrestlers do. Jacob's life was all about wrestling. Jacob's life was all about manipulating other people in order to get his own way. Jacob knew how to wrestle. And Jacob enters into this wrestling match, again in the midst of fear, in the midst of worry about whether he was going to live. And nothing places you into a place of a combination of fear and prayer other than that sense of, I, I just do not know what the future is going to hold. And on both occasions, I imagine that Jacob's mind is filled with thoughts of his brother Esau. In the first instance, he's thinking, is Esau coming behind me to kill me? In the second instance, is Esau coming directly for me to kill me? In both instances, he doesn't think he's going to live very long. And yet God has given him this promise. And so he wrestles. 
and amazingly, in this wrestle which is orchestrated by God himself. Jacob wins the wrestling match. The prophet Hosea, writing hundreds of years later, said this in talking about Jacob. Jacob struggled with the angel and overcame him. Then he wept and begged for his favor. God found Jacob at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. One of the greatest points of brokenness in our lives, if not the greatest point of brokenness in our lives, is how we relate to people whom we see as adversaries. I imagine that you in your life have had instances, and if you haven't, then I imagine you will have instances, where you encounter people that you feel are being hostile towards you, perhaps they are being hostile towards you, and the first reaction that we have is to be hostile right back. Our first response is to see the person as an adversary. But the reason why Jesus says to us, love your enemy, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who come against you, is because Jesus knows that the greatest brokenness that comes around in our lives is by how we treat people who are hostile towards us. There is no greater level of brokenness in our lives other than if we live our lives with people who we consider as enemies. It breaks us. It may not break them, but it breaks us. And that's why Jesus says, love your enemy, because he doesn't want us to be broken. And so if you've ever had that experience, or if you're in the midst of that experience, or if you do experience that experience, then you and I will, will, will enter into the possibility of wrestling. And maybe you've had nights where you've tossed and turned. And as you've tossed and turned at night, there's an image of a person in your mind. And there's only one way out of that wrestle that is a good outcome. And that is to invite God to come into the wrestle. Jacob is like the adult playing snap with the three-year-old child. Jacob is a brilliant cheat. Jacob can win virtually every contest of anybody who comes against him. And again and again he cheats, and again and again he overcomes through cunning and deceit and manipulation. And he has a wrestle with God. He has a wrestle with an angel of the Lord. And he wins the match. And all of a sudden, he realizes that all his victories are completely hollow. And the only one he's deceiving, the only one who's losing is actually himself. 
And so having won this wrestling match that God enters into and allows Jacob to win, he sits down in the dust and he breaks down. And he begs God for mercy. He wins the match and then he begs his opponent for mercy. And the Lord blesses him. See, here's the thing about wrestling. Here's the thing that changed Jacob's life. Jacob entered into this wrestling match. At first, it was with Esau, I imagine, in his mind's eye. But gradually, he realized that the person actually he was wrestling was God himself. And the thing about wrestling is it's a very intimate affair. I don't know if you've ever wrestled, whether by sport or with a brother or with a parent, uh, just that fun wrestling. If you don't know what fun wrestling looks like, then it can be really fun. But the thing is, it's a very intimate affair because you grasp hold of your opponent tight and they grasp hold of you tight and you can... You can feel their breath on you in the midst of the wrestle. And you can feel their strength. And you come face to face, eye to eye with them in the midst of the wrestle. Jacob wrestled with God in the flesh. And that changes a person. And Jacob realized as he looked into the eyes of his opponent and as he felt the hands that were on him, he realized the strength of his opponent and he also realized the fact that his opponent didn't want to hurt him. The purpose of his opponent was actually to bless him. And so Jacob, having won the match, sits down in the dust beside his opponent and he breaks down. Because he realizes that the hands that have been wrestling him and holding him have, as it were, nail marks on them. He realizes that the strength and love of his opponent is such that his opponent has allowed him to win. He gets a foretaste of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he realizes that God, who is all-powerful, is willing to be overcome. Why? So he can embrace those who come to wrestle him. And that they, in the midst of the wrestle, will become intimate with him, will look into his eyes and feel his breath and feel his grip and realize that his grip is not to hurt. His grip is to heal. His grip is to free. His grip is to bless. Are there people in your life that you're struggling not to see as an adversary? You're then ask God into the situation and keep asking God into the situation and do what Jesus said because it's the way to life, it's the way to fullness, it's the way to wholeness, it's the way not to become broken. And, And we hand over the person to God and we say, God, bless that person. 
give them the desires of their heart. Bless them. Pour out practical blessing upon them and all the love and joy and peace and forgiveness you have. Bless them. You see, as Jacob came out of that moment of solitude, having wrestled and broken down and and God to remind him of the wrestle and the fact that he had met with God touches his hip and, as it were, it seems, dislocates his hip. And it looks, well, it's, a, it's an act of mercy. Because, as is often the case, when you step out of a time of solitude, so often there's a moment of an opportunity for breakthrough that comes immediately. And if you do practice solitude, you'll discover this, that there are moments of opportunity for growth that come just after moments of solitude. So the Bible tells us as soon as Jacob had received the blessing of meeting God, he calls the place Penuel, which means face-to-face with God. He realizes he's wrestled God and come face-to-face. And immediately, Esau arrives with 400 men. And Jacob still has to move and live out his name. Israel struggles with God. And we see the fact that that takes years to happen. He has this new name, but he's still trying to deceive. He's still sending his children out in front. But this time, something has happened And he himself comes out the front. And as he approaches his brother Esau, he bows down seven times as he approaches him. If you are a cheat and a deceiver, what's the one thing you never want your opponent to see? Your place of weakness. And yet Jacob walks out towards Esau with his 400 men. And as he walks out towards him, there's tear marks on his eyes and he's dragging his leg. It's the last way Jacob wanted to meet his brother. But God has done this as an act of grace. Why? Because Jacob has to own up to his vulnerability and his weakness. He has to approach his brother, not in strength and cunning and deceit. He has to approach his brother with tear-stained eyes, and he has to approach him with a limp. And what happens? His brother Esau runs towards him, and he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him all over his neck and his head, and they weep together. And we discover the wonderful truth that not only has God been at work in Jacob, he has been at work in Esau. We're not told anything about how God has been dealing with Esau. The Bible remains silent on that. But here's the thing. God has transformed Esau's heart as he is already seeking to transform Jacob's heart. And here's the thing we discover. If we allow God in the midst of the wrestling to have his way and to hand over the person and the situation and the brokenness and the pain of our lives to God, we discover the fact that he actually wants to use his arms to embrace us. And we discover that that's what the game is all about. God will let us beat him. God will let us mock him. God will let us spit on him. 
God will let us crucify him. But he only has one intent, and that is to embrace us. And he also wants to transform our lives and the lives of those who we may see as opponents or adversaries. And if we do that, we discover two wonderful things, that God is a wonderful, loving Father. And we also discover the truth that we will be embraced not just by Him, but by those whose lives He has also transformed. And that is what the game is all about. It's not winning in a way that causes us and everyone else to lose. That is a hollow victory. And the sooner you and I wake up to that reality, the better. Because the person who is damaged most is yourself. No matter how cunning, no matter how clever, the person you're deceiving most is yourself. And what the Lord wants for us is the equivalent of that wonderful game of snap where the room becomes filled with laughter and delight and joy. Why? Because the real prize is the relationship. I don't know if any of those prayer points or revelations the, the, the prayer team had for use resonate with you. There's one there about busyness and rushing and haste. Is that the case in your life? And are you doing that because you want to try and outrun God? That there is deep pain in your life caused by people who have been hostile towards you and perhaps you have been hostile towards them. And the Lord is saying, don't try to outrun me. Be embraced by me. Know the fact that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And that wonderful picture of Paul and Silas being offered freedom through the open door of the prison. And sometimes instead we hang on to the bars and we say, I'm not going to let this go, God. This person's hurt me. And God wants to prise our fingers off that bar and say the door of this prison is wide open. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. It's one of the most difficult choices we'll ever make. But it's the choice to be obedient to Jesus Christ who loves us, who is willing with his nail-pierced hands to wrestle us, to bless us, to strengthen us, to free us and discover what it means to have the fullness of life, to be embraced by the Father, and God willing to be embraced by others whose lives have also been transformed. Let's pray.